Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Pain, suffering, trauma, sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual discrimination. From small indiscretions to life-threatening, sometimes life-ending injuries, the nature of gender violence is broad and the experience so common. Anger. So much anger, frustration and distress from so many women and friends. We know that anger can achieve change. But what change is needed, and do we have the solutions that address the myriad of challenges faced by women and minority groups on a daily basis today? This story is about trauma and anger, but it leads to power, to policy and politics, but mostly to power, the structure of power in Australia and around the world, the established ways of working that entrench power structures and make genuine change harder. As women and their allies gathered around Australia, the trauma is shared, the anger is real, the call for change is resounding. And yet, with an extraordinary breadth of challenges faced, the pathway forward is not as clear as we would like. Welcome to a special episode of Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Anagreta Hunter, I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow here at ANU. And I'm the sole interviewer today on the Policy Forum pod, produced by policyforum.net as part of the Crawford School of Public Policy. The Crawford School is, of course, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school, and I remind all of our listeners to check out the degree programs and the short courses that are available at crawford.anu.edu.au. study So on to today's topic. In recent months, Australia has been shaken by serious allegations of sexual assault. More shocking because these allegations relate to the nation's parliament. These particular allegations are in a context of far broader and deeper issues of sexual violence and violence against women in Australia. And to contextualise this, some data. According to the Australia Institute of Health and Welfare, one in five or around 18% of women in Australia have experienced sexual violence from the age of 15. One in 20 or maybe 5% of men have experienced sexual violence over the age of 15. About half the women in Australia have been sexually harassed since the age of 15, compared with one in four men. One in six women have experienced stalking since the age of 16, compared with one in 15 men. And in our community, abuse starts early. One in six women and one in nine men have experienced physical or sexual abuse before the age of 15. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare summarises the situation as follows. Domestic and sexual violence is the major health and welfare issue that can have lifelong impacts for victims and for perpetrators. It affects people of all ages and all backgrounds, but it does predominantly affect women and children. As Australia struggles to deal with these confronting issues, there's been outrage this week in the United Kingdom after a young woman was murdered whilst walking home. A serving member of London's Metropolitan Police Force has been charged with her kidnap and murder. Police in London have come under direct criticism for their response to a vigil for the murdered woman using what's been described as quite violent tactics whilst clashing with protesters. And back here in Australia this week, we saw many thousands of women and men March for Justice, outraged by both the allegations that have recently emerged and the response of government. 
So in this episode, we'll not be focusing on any particular case, but we will be delving into how we might begin to make sense of the kinds of responses we've seen to violence and serious allegations of violence in recent weeks and how we might move forward, what kind of leadership is needed. And to join me today, I have two extraordinary guests. Firstly, I'd like to introduce Professor Kim Rubenstein. She's a legal uh, scholar and practitioner. She's one of Australia's leading experts on citizenship. She's a fellow of the Australian Academy of Law and fellow of the Australian Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. Kim has a long history of research and advocacy for gender equity. In 2013, she received the Edna Ryan Award for Leadership for leading feminist charges in the public sphere. She's a past convener of the ANU Gender Institute and in 2020 became the inaugural co-director of a 50-50 by 2030 foundation at the University of Canberra. She's also a professor in the university's Faculty of Business, Government and Law. Welcome, Kim. Thanks, Anna Greta. And of course, the other guest I have the pleasure of introducing is usually my co-host, Professor Sharon Bezel. She's usually the co-host of the pod, but today she's swapped chairs or she's on the other side of the microphone. Sharon was Director of Gender Equity and Diversity at the Crawford School of Public Policy from 2016 to 2020. Her research has included women's political leadership and representation, the gendered nature of poverty and disadvantage, and issues around child protection. In 2019, she was named as one of Australian Financial Review's Women of Influence for that year for her work on gender equity, and Kim was also named as one of the Australian Financial Review's Women of Influence in 2012. It is so great to have both of these women with me today. So welcome, Kim and Sharon. Thank you so much for bringing your wisdom to the other side of the microphone. And I'm very much looking forward to this conversation, having been at the march yesterday here in Canberra. I'm hoping that we might find a map towards a better future for our society, one in which we can really address the deep challenges of gender discrimination and violence. So perhaps we can start with the recent events. Kim, you were at the March for Justice in Canberra on Monday. How would you summarise the issues that were raised at that event? And, and how would you summarise the feeling and the mood of the crowd there that was quite overwhelming? It was, wasn't it? It was um, both inspiring and sobering, I think, at the same time. There was a real mood of energy and excitement to be together in that sort of democratic space, I mean, physically in terms of parliament, but with so many other people around us. I think the crowds are estimated to five to 6,000, and there is a sense of, of real um, participatory democracy when you're standing physically in front of the parliament wanting to share views. So that, I guess, was one side. As someone who encourages active citizenship, it was there was a, a, a physical, um, emotional response to just being there with so many other people. And then I think the range of um, speeches really um, touched on so many profound issues that um, it was, again, just inspiring. I think the the breadth of lived experience, the sense of intersectionality that came from those um, varied voices was very affirming. Um, so on all those scores, I think it was a very uplifting experience. And the messages are long-term messages that no doubt Sharon and I will spend very easily the next 40 to 45 minutes talking about. Absolutely. Um Kim, the worrying issue around the treatment of women with, within politics and perhaps more broadly with society, they're not new. Why do you think that there's been such a strong reaction from the Australian community in the last month or so? What is it that's trigger? I think that's a really interesting question also from a public policy point of view in terms of how do you affect real change. And some of this can actually be, I think, one of those sort of lotteries of the coincidences of things happening at the same time or the cumulative effect in different periods that just strike a particular chord. So the linking of the broader public policy issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis with the public mood of responding to those long-standing issues. And I think, you know, the ABC reporting the Four Corners um, program first up last November, followed by the series of events that have then come out as a result of it, and I think the other really key issue is the grace, choice of Grace Tame as the strain of the year. Mm. That sort of confluence of each of those just amplified what should have been amplified all along 
that really, I think, had a very powerful impact on society more broadly. Mm. No, I think they're all really important points. There's momentum that's built that we've not seen previously. Mm. Yeah. Um, Sharon, we find ourselves in a bad place in terms of violence against women and respect for women in our society. What are some of the factors that have brought us here? I think there are many layers and many levels to explaining what, what's brought us here. I think some of those issues are the factors that Kim's just talked about, um, you know, the, the very recent cases. Um, I agree that the Grace Thames, um appointment or, or as, as Australian of the Year has been really important to this. But I think part of what we see here in terms of the place we find ourselves in is the response that we have had from our political leaders particularly and from government and the denial and the refusal to even acknowledge that there is pain on the part of people who have made allegations or who have allegedly had um, quite terrible things committed against them. So I think it's that refusal at the starting point of, of, of government to recognise that there is human suffering here, that there is pain, and that that must be acknowledged outside of a, of a very narrow legal process. Mm. So I think that's, you know, the, the first layer. I think we put that into a broader context of what we know about ongoing violence against women. And Anna Greta, you mapped out those really horrifying statistics um, at the beginning of, of our conversation today. And of course, they're not statistics. You know, for every single one of those cases, that's a human that is in pain, that is a life that has been damaged, if not destroyed. So we've got that broader context um, of women knowing that this kind of violence carries on and has carried on for so long mm. in our society. And I think we've got then a broader set of issues if we keep kind of going through these layers. I think we have in Australia a really proud record around gender equity. And, and at one point, we we're at the forefront of international efforts to really put gender equity and equality at the centrepiece of our policies. And we've really stalled on that. Yep. You know, if we go back to the 1970s and into the 1980s, we can point to lots of really great things. Yep. Over the past decade, it's pretty hard to point to much at all. Yep. And the final piece of that kind of picture that I'd add in is a really big picture issue of several decades now of what is really a dominant neoliberal agenda, mm. where we've seen kind of market-based approaches shaping what we value and we've seen the erosion of care and compassion and empathy. And I think we are seeing that now playing out in the kinds of political leadership we have. So that's a very long and complex answer, but mm. I think we find ourselves here for all of those reasons across all of those mm. levels. Well, that's a beautiful framework. It's one I'm going to come back to, that, the framework of acknowledging the trauma, recognising there's an ongoing problem I think leadership is one of the points that we'll no doubt flesh out a little bit further and the, the, the real change in Australian policy landscape towards reaction rather than a proactive and, uh, and better moving forward. Um, and, and this, this extraordinary importance around the, the language of caring and the value of caring. Kim, there's one particular case that's been in the media recently where a rape has allegedly taken place many years ago and the person who allegedly suffered the assault has tragically taken her own life. There are some really challenging issues at play here in this case, and the issues are made much more complicated by the position of the person against whom the allegations have been made. How do we begin to balance the presumption of innocence with the need to ensure that the people who've been victims of sexual assault are not dismissed or ignored? Yes, look, it's obviously a very um, sensitive and um, a difficult area, but I think this particular circumstance is one where we have to separate out um, the legal frameworks and criminal frameworks as to when you decide whether someone is guilty and deserving of the judgment that goes with that guilt from, and so the criminal legal system, from the broader political framework within which this particular person who, the, um, who is the alleged perpetrator, holds in our system of representative democracy. 
and we have, and I think this is something that come, we'll come back to in terms of the Prime Minister's discussion in, in Question Time yesterday about the nature of representative democracy in Australia. But we have a very strong system that is a mix, really, of the of the conventions of the um, of the British Westminster system of parliamentary responsibility and ministerial responsibility, with the principles of separation of powers that comes from the US. Washminster, often referred to as the Washminster system, a mixture of of the influence of the American um, Constitution and the um, the UK um, constitutional principles that were pretty fundamental to the framing of our Australian system of representative democracy. And when any minister has any question about their standing that would lower the trust of the people in that person in that ministerial role, not even of a criminal nature, but in relation to their capacity to fulfil that role in our system. There have been standards over the years that have changed. So, you know, when I, my very early years back in the 1990s, starting to teach constitutional law to students, we would talk about the various ministers who would take responsibility for decisions within their own departments that they weren't personally responsible for making themselves but over whom they had carriage of responsibility where there'd been periods where that minister would stand down from their ministerial position. It doesn't mean that they're no longer a member of parliament because, of course, the electors choose for them to be members of parliament and, of course, at their next election, those same electors will have the responsibility is to determining whether they want that particular person to be their representative. That's very different from ministerial responsibility because they're part of the executive branch, which is separate from our legislative branch. And so those standards that come with the executive branch are not unlike the standards we expect of our judicial branch, for instance. So we can see the parallels, for instance, with the um, allegations against Dyson Hayden in the High Court and how there were processes that were established in relation to his standing as a high court, former High Court judge and ways to improve systems for current High Court judges in the management of these sorts of issues. And that's, that's a way of saying that there would be measures and steps that could be taken to review the appropriateness of the Attorney General um, when such allegations are made. And that's not to detract from the presumption of innocence, but rather to amplify the notion that that he in that role has an opportunity to respond to those allegations in relation to his standing as the Attorney General. And I think, of course, yesterday's announcement that he's initiated defamation proceedings adds another layer yet again. But that layer, again, is also so relevant to our system of of free speech in a um, system of representative democracy and an implied freedom for political speech that is relevant to a person's standing and the public interest in determining the worthiness or appropriateness of an individual for those public roles. So that's a very long answer to say that it's not just about criminal innocence, it's about a broader principle which underpins our system of the rule of law, of accountability of those who exercise power in our parliamentary system and in our system of the of representative democracy, that there are different standards at play for those different roles. Absolutely. So the ministerial code of conduct and the way in which that could be applied, and I, I gather that doesn't have a legislative legal framework behind it, but it's a it's an ethical obligation perhaps of our leaders um, and it's an ethical obligation that maybe hasn't been employed over a number of issues in the last years, maybe decades. Yep. Well, it's interesting um, that there were various different um, unwritten codes. Then when John Howard became Prime Minister within his first year of his Prime Ministership, he effectively um, wrote down a um, code. They're policies. They're not, as you said, legislatively um, governed, but they are policies to um, assist us in measuring accountability. Now, that those um, codes then were updated by Kevin Rudd and their guidance, but I think that they're useful for the political judgment by the people who are choosing whether or not to re-elect those individuals as to, and as an assessment of the ethics of the particular government at any particular time, they become a measure of accountability between elections for us as citizens to make our decisions as to the appropriateness 
of any um, individual or government to continue in that role of their responsibility for their exercise of power. Mm. Sharon, I know you've also given this quite a bit of thought of the the role of the the criminal allegation and the the presumption of innocence, um, and and in on the other side the code of conduct and the expectation from our leaders. What are your thoughts on how we might balance these issues and and how we can move forward? I think what Kim has just mapped out is so fundamentally important here, and. Kim explains that so beautifully that it seems very, very clear. And in some ways, this is not a terribly complex problem. (laughs) Um, You know, the issue itself is very complex and very distressing, but how to respond to it is is not that complex by recognising that a person in a position of authority may need to step aside in order for the processes of democracy to work. Um, and to ensure that there is um, a genuine sense of trust in the democratic process and in the people who have been elected is quite separate from saying that someone is guilty. And I think the blurring of those things that has happened, perhaps purposefully, um, is really problematic because it has polarised the discussions to such an extent that it feels as though there's no way forward. And I think it's that polarisation that is so incredibly problematic. I think on the the presumption of innocence, we're also seeing some really problematic and polarised conversations. I think the, the, the language of the victim must always be believed is so incredibly important because we have so often seen women not believed and discarded and shamed. And our legal systems often treat women who are brave enough to bring forward allegations of sexual assault are treated so incredibly badly. Mm. But I think the language of the victim must always be believed also has a kind of a prior step of how do we know who the victim is, you know, and there is a, a place where we're in the realm of allegation and no one should be condemned on someone else's word alone without a due process. Mm. But what we seem to be missing is how we treat people who bring forward those allegations, and that has to be with care, with compassion and empathy, and with respect. Mm. And what we often see when people bring forward allegations is the opposite of that, and that makes it almost impossible to deal with these issues in a way that will move us forward because we we get into such polarised territory and so many women are terrified of bringing forward, forward an allegation because of the way they'll be treated. Mm. Just to add in there, uh, that was when we were talking about the beginning of our feelings yesterday, that was something that became very, uh, that, that realisation, which of course intellectually one can feel, I felt even more yesterday listening to Brittany Higgins, um, the brave, I mean, We've all said how brave she has been in coming out and 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 speaking about her experience, um, but listening, like literally listening to the emotion in her voice yesterday, and the vulnerability involved for any human being to share the the um, experience that she had, you know, with any other person, let alone to the public at such a enormous level and then just standing there in front of the crowd you you just could feel the intensity of the of the, of the impact of that on her as a human being and um i think what Sharon's just said you know she represents that in so many ways and there are just so many people out there who are, are grateful to her for doing that but um you know that uh, are all re-experiencing their own vulnerabilities from their own experiences every time they listen to her voice Yesterday, following the March for Justice, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said in parliamentary question time that ours is a vibrant liberal democracy. Not far from here, marches are being met with bullets. And noted that it's a triumph of democracy where we see such things as the March for Justice taking place. Kim, what do you think? Was was the march yesterday a triumph of democracy? Look, I think um, there's no doubt that that description of um, being grateful for the democratic space that we live in is an important one to make. But if that is all that we expect from our democracy, then we're really at the lowest common denominator concept of democracy. 
And in fact, I think back to what Sharon was saying earlier about Australia leading the way in relation to gender equality. Um, you know, the, the pieces of legislation in the 1970s, the Family Law Act, the Sex Discrimination Act, later the Affirmative Action um, legislation. We were, Australia has been a leader in democratic um, progress. Um, and in fact, we can go back historically in the 1890s when the whole um, uh, conventions were um, uh, being held to set up our constitutional system. Catherine Helen Spence in South Australia in the 1890s was the first woman to run for political office in wanting to be a representative at those people's conventions. And she was advocating for a system of proportional representation. And she, as a, um, as a woman, was a real trailblazer. And in fact, um, the whole opportunity for women to not only vote but to stand for parliament, you know, we, we can lay claim in Australia as being the first of the combination. So to take us back to just a minimalistic view of democracy is not to scoff at it in any sense because, of course, that is exactly what we as um, people who are blessed to live in a democracy appreciate. But if that is the highest element of what democracy stands for in Australia, then we really are back to basics. And I think there are many of us who feel that democracy is that as the foundation, but so much more. It has to be about listening to the diversity of views. It has to make meaningful the facts that you can stand and speak your voice to those in power. It's not just a hollow action. It has to have consequences. Otherwise, that democracy is very shallow. Sharon, what were your thoughts on what a vibrant democracy might look like? Well, I think once again, Kim and I are in furious agreement on this. Yes. <laughs> I, I did listen to those comments with, to be honest, a deep level of distress on so many levels. And I guess the, the first level of distress was the kind of offhanded reference to protesters being met with bullets not so far from us. And I assume that was a reference uh, to the protests in Myanmar. And I certainly have friends and, and former students and colleagues in Myanmar. And that is such a, a terrible situation that I was concerned about it being sort of referred to in, in such an offhand way. Um, and I guess for many of us, you know, our, our thoughts and our prayers are with people in Myanmar mm -hmm. at the moment. But coming back to Australia, I, I think Kim is absolutely right. The fr freedom to protest, freedom of expression is absolutely fundamental to our democracy. Um, but it is a low bar if that is all we see as our democracy. I think we have seen a breakdown in the processes of democracy in the way the allegations that we were just talking about have been handled. Um, and I, I was concerned at other comments that were made around the march. You know, we, we know that the Prime Minister invited the organisers of the protest into his office um, and they didn't accept that invitation because he had been invited to address all the, the, the people at the, at the march. And I think this is a really fundamental issue of our democracy as well. Here we had citizens pleading to be heard mm. by their political leaders. And we had political leaders refusing to listen because they were too busy or otherwise preoccupied. Um, and at one point we had a, a member of the government saying that um, or reportedly saying that it is a privilege to meet with the Prime Minister um, and people should be grateful for that and should have taken up his invitation. Mm. It is not a privilege to meet with the Prime Minister in a democracy mm. um, in, in terms of fundamental pr principles. Mm. You know, it is our political leaders who should feel privileged to be able to represent and engage with the citizens and to work on their behalf. And I think we're seeing that kind of recognition missing from the conversations around democracy that are being led by the Prime Minister and others so at the moment. That was one of the most amazing moments, I thought, out of the march was watching the politicians come out. And uh, so the Labor Party, a number of Liberal Party members, uh, the Greens and the crossbench walked out at the front door of Parliament House and came down to join the protest. As I, I personally stood behind and beside quite a range of different members of Parliament and to feel them as 
as part of the audience, to have them as part of this conversation was one of the most extraordinary elements of that particular march. So I, I think you're very much onto that, about about participating in democracy, about listening to the community, and that, that's what the role of the Prime Minister is. It's to listen to his or her community. And democracy is something that we collectively own. Yes. And we collectively protect. Yeah. I think that's a great spot to take a quick break and we'll be back with you in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. Uh, this is an extraordinary conversation with Kim Rubenstein and Sharon Bessel. Uh, we're talking, of course, about the recent issues in gender politics in Australia and particularly reflecting on the march that we had uh, around the country in the last week. Kim, before the break, we were talking about events that have occurred in Australia in the last few weeks and the March for Justice just a few days ago. Let's turn to the issue of leadership. What leadership do we need to move us towards a more gender just society? Look, I think this is a really profound question and one, of course, by being a co-director of the 5050 by 2030 Foundation, I'm very intensely interested in and working towards. I think that there are, um, you know, it's a really profound question about how do we not only get to a scenario where we have equal um, participation by women um, in and gender diverse identities in our parliamentary framework, but how do we not only get there, because we could set up quotas, for instance, and say we this is just something that we are going to introduce and that might be one way of assisting us, but how do we do it in a way that embeds it as a norm and an expectation in society? And one of the, um, what, one of the opportunities that COVID gave us in our, um, in, our, in our first year as co-directors, my co-director Trish Bergen and I started really just a month before lockdown, but it gave us an opportunity to really try to unpack what are the different areas that need shifting in order to not only achieve gender equality but embed it as a norm. And the three areas that we've identified that we're wanting to really concentrate on and bring really experts from all different disciplinary backgrounds together around are what we're calling share the load, share the benefits and share the power. And by that and just, you know, not wanting to take up the rest of our time, but briefly to say share the load is saying that in order for, for women to really participate equally in the public sphere, we need to think about what their responsibilities have been in the private sphere. And COVID gave us a real opportunity to see the, the double shift or the extra load that women have in the domestic unpaid care and unpaid sort of work environment in society and how we need to shift the levers to encourage more sharing of that load by men with women, both in terms of childcare, in terms of the service industries, you know, if we look at the feminised industries of of, um, of the healthcare industry, education, shifting those frames of gendered norms in those areas will not only benefit women in terms of enabling them to be equal participants in the public sphere, but we also believe would also assist with some of the issues to do with toxic masculinity and the, and the problems that men have in society, that if there was an expectation and a norm of them being equally involved in those areas in society, that that would also involve a shift that would assist in inequality more broadly. And then to bolster that in the economic sphere, that there are structural frameworks that 
embed or have encouraged those those unequal sort of shares in the load. So our tax system and the tax and transfer system that really um, does does demarcate between the primary earner and the secondary earner and, and childcare flow on from that. The parental care frameworks, superannuation expectations, all of those things that need um, and have had a lot of work on them, but linking those uh, things together, which we then think would assist with the shift in terms of sharing the power, but that you need to have women equally sharing the power in order to help with those shifts in the other direction so that they're so intertwined that we sort of need to have work being done on all three areas. And that's something that we're um, working on. And, in fact, to do a call out that we've got a a call for papers for a symposium in June that we might issue through the policy pod as well to encourage people to come together with us to sort of try and unpack those areas even more. Fantastic. We'll make sure that gets out. Um, Sharon, a couple of weeks ago, we had a fabulous conversation for International Women's Day, and, and I was I'm personally still thinking a lot about the ideas of meritocracy that Fiona Jenkins brought to that conversation. What are your thoughts on gender quotas? Do we need them in Parliament? Uh, are there other key decision-making bodies where we should be looking for gender equality? Are there ways to address this? Look, for, for any of our listeners that, that haven't listened to that pod that we did for International Women's Day, um, just a small plug, that is really <laughs> worth listening to. And I won't try to summarise Fiona's um, arguments around meritocracy um, and the concerns that she raised because she did it so beautifully mm. herself, but have a listen. Um, on gender quotas, I've um, long been a supporter of gender quotas um, and have written around this, and I think that the arguments for the greater numerical presence of women is fundamentally important as a first step perhaps towards achieving the kinds of things that Kim is talking about. But there are some um, some shortcomings of quotas and I think one of those, those shortcomings that has been really um, widely discussed in the literature is that it's not appropriate for a society to assume that women should always take responsibility for gender equality. That has to be the responsibility of women of people in leadership positions, whether they be women or men, if they are people who are genuinely concerned about social justice and about a fair society. And so I think when we talk about quotas, we can sometimes fall into the assumption that we will have more women in parliament and then it becomes women's business to work on gender equality. Um, And of course, having more women in parliament often does shift the debate quite dramatically, but it should be the responsibility of, of everyone, not only women who are in parliament or in positions of of leadership. And of course, there is a distinction between numerical representation and then substantive representation and the ability to influence. And so if we have women in parliament, but not in cabinet, or we have women in parliament, but they are not given the opportunity to speak, then we're really not achieving what we need to through quotas and targets. So I think they have a role to play, but it's perhaps a limited role. And I guess on some of these issues, I would start to go big. Mm. I mean, I agree entirely with, with what Kim has mapped out, but I'm also thinking to the conversations that we had last year, Anna Greta, around a wellbeing economy, about rethinking the way that we structure our societies. And I think that in order to address some of these really fundamental issues of justice and of equality, we have to not just move policy levers within the system that we've got, we have actually got to start to challenge a system of governance that is driven by economic factors, that is driven by the drive for not so much even economic growth, but for the profit of those who own some of the key institutions within our society. We've got to move away from um, the profitization of care. What we're seeing now is women doing enormous amounts of unpaid care or women working for very low wages and some men working for very low wages Mm. in a care industry that is really about profit, not care. Mm. And so I think we have to bring concepts of well-being um, 
of human well-being, of planetary well-being, and of social justice to the fore. And I think that means as fundamentally rethinking and challenging the way our societies are structured. And that's not just in Australia, but globally. And I think that is a conversation that we perhaps have a unique moment in history to have as we find ourselves in a pandemic that has thrown everything up into the air. That's really well put, Sharon. Thank you so much for that call to arms for imagination. Kim, the 5050 by 2030 Foundation, you've spoken a little bit about the work that you're doing with the foundation, but you're aiming to achieve gender parity in public leadership by 2030. What steps do we need to take to make that vision a reality? What can we do practically? Yes. Well, I think, again, as, as Sharon just said, we are at a moment where these issues are being heightened. And so we need to grab that and move forward as much as possible. I think Kate Jenkins' review of Parliament as a safe and equal workplace is a good starting point for thinking through our parliamentary frameworks, not only for her being able to review the specific cases of individuals who may come to her in a, a private and confidential way, but I'm hoping people like Sharon and others will add to the policy thoughts that she, you know, policy submissions that she might take on board in thinking through her recommendations about the nature of our parliamentary framework, the adversarial nature of question time, various aspects of the parliamentary processes that should be um, rethought and re-evaluated. I'm also very keen to push for, and we'll be certainly presenting a paper on this myself in June, about thinking about the nature of representation in our parliament. So one example, which is not my own unique um, idea, but rather something that I saw in the UK a few years ago, is the idea of shared representation so that two people nominate to be the representative for a particular electorate. So Sharon and I, for instance, nominating to represent the people of Bean, for instance, as a job share to enable more people who can't commit to a full-time um, load in Parliament to share that load to enable more diversity within our parliamentary space and more diversity of experience by virtue of reaching out to a broader group who can think about being members of parliament. Because really, in its basic sense, it's about representation of the people. So the more diversity you get of that people, the better that is for our parliamentary process. And so there are ways of rethinking our um, uh, legislative structure, the constitutional interpretation involved, in enabling something like that to re- to shift our thinking about the nature of power and, and the shared nature of power. So there are a couple of, of examples. Quotas are obviously another, but I think that if we can sort of raise the discussion in this sort of really extensive way about the structural foundations both in the sort of social, economic and political realms as well as concrete steps that can be taken um, that may flow out of the Jenkins report, may flow out of our symposium and other research that's been done around the country, I think um, they will be, you know, really positive steps about it affecting change. And, our, you know, by 2030 target is really just to say that these things um, can't just be forever and a day. We have to act on them. And, you know, one of the sentiments from yesterday's march is, that it's not just a matter of speaking, but then expecting our politicians and our policymakers to take on board those calls in a way that is implemented in real and practical terms and not in a knee-jerk reaction, but really in a more holistic sense about those fundamental changes that need to occur. Just want to ask Sharon about the role of women in in this. Um, Sharon, in recent cases in both Australia and in the UK, women in leadership roles have in fact been the target of criticism for their responses. Uh, what do we make of that situation? Yeah, I think we we see. Um, I think you, you're referring to um, in the Australian context. Um, we've seen the uh, the Minister for Defence um, criticised for for her response and for some. Um, quite inappropriate comments that that were made um, around one allegation of a sexual assault that took place, allegedly took place in the parliament. Um, And we've recently seen, you know, just over this week in the UK, um, the commissioner of the London Met criticised for the action of the police in um, response to the vigil that you talked about in the introduction, Anna Greta. 
And I think this goes back to the point that I made earlier. I mean, I think in these cases, those women are in leadership positions and certainly should be criticised for actions that they have taken that have not been appropriate or that they have been responsible for. But I think we often see, in the media particularly, often greater vitriol targeted towards women who are in leadership positions and are seen to have behaved in ways that are not appropriate. And in this case, I think this goes back to the point that I was making earlier, that it's not exclusively women that are responsible for Mm. issues around gender. Mm. And women shouldn't necessarily be blamed more than male leaders are when inappropriate behaviour takes place. That doesn't lead us to a place where we should not be holding female leaders accountable. But I think we really see a double standard in terms of the extent of accountability and what's expected from female leaders and what's expected from male leaders, particularly around gender issues. And I think we we have to broaden out the sense of responsibility and accountability so that all leaders are responsible for promoting gender justice and gender equality. Mm. I just want to add there too, and I, th- I think this is part of the sort of structural framework within which politics takes place here in, in Australia, and that is, you know, this sort of highly intensely adversarial um, uh, environment that um, politicians are working within, not only in Parliament itself but their pre-selection in their parties to get their positions, that the intensely um, competitive, you know, um, uh, power at all cost type of, um, you know, sort of framework or culture that adds an intensity to any person who is in that position um, that um, is quite gendered, whether you're a man or a woman or a non-binary person, the environment itself is so intensely competitive that um, I think that that also underscores some of the reactions of individuals that. Um, doesn't justify it in any way, but is also important to address in terms of how do we move forward to enable all people to have the, their best selves being represented rather than, the, than their worst selves being drawn out by the environment. So there's some really great ideas just in those two comments uh, that might lead us to the last question I'm going to ask you both. If you've got the Prime Minister's office or the um, office for, the, for the, um, the, the Minister for Women on the phone and they're asking for advice, one key piece of advice for policymakers on how to move forward from the position that we found ourselves in with the marches and the anger that's on the street at the moment, what's your one piece of advice? I think it would be to honestly sit down with a diverse group of individuals to listen to the different experiences experiences beyond their own lived experience and not just to have that process but to integrate those experiences into their forward thinking about how to improve the situation for everyone. I think in any scenario when you are challenged on your view and you hear different perspectives, you are going to either be assisted in refining your own experience and view or hopefully persuaded that there are different ways of responding to a scenario. And um, I I truly believe that's for all aspects of policy, Um, but certainly from a gender perspective, we want a range of individuals and um, not just gender equity in terms of the numbers in the room, but the range of experiences within those groups. And that was just one other point I was going to make earlier, that the quota system not only enables um, more women to be um, considered, but I would also advocate it would also and should also shift our thinking of the range of men who would want to be interested and involved, that you would gain a greater diversity of the lived experience of men from a range of different backgrounds who we just don't see in Parliament at the moment either. Mm. Sharon? I'm, I'm so happy to hear Kim raise listening because this has been such a consistent theme of um, our podcasts over the past three or four months that um, moving forward is, is, is when, when we talk about moving forward on so many issues, listening in a genuine way to diverse perspectives has come up again and again. Um, 
I think I, I in, in terms of a piece of advice, I might be cheeky and say I'd offer a an immediate piece of advice and advice and a longer term piece of advice. And I do think if it were the Prime Minister or the Minister for Women that I was um, making a recommendation to, I think it has to be that we need political leadership that will aim to heal divides rather than deepening them at this point in time. I think it was amazing to see the March for Justice and the range of people, men and women, people identifying a, 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 across genders, older people, children, you know, across the board we had people coming together pleading for justice. That's a moment that can be used as a healing opportunity in a way to move forward, but it can also potentially become very divisive if those pleas are not met or if they're dismissed. And so I think we must have leadership that aims to heal. And Kim has laid out the first steps in that in a very practical way of beginning to separate out ministerial responsibility um, from other legal processes. So I think that's absolutely critical. Um, and longer term, I would love to see our political leaders embarking on a genuinely deliberative process of democracy, which goes to Kim's point of listening, where we can begin to have a fundamental conversation in this country about what a just and fair society looks like. These are values that we pride ourselves on, but values that I feel we're starting to lose our grip on. So that kind of conversation across the country, I think, would be a wonderful thing to come out of this moment. What an amazing way to finish an extraordinary conversation. And can I confess that this conversation for me has personally been profoundly uplifting. I find yesterday's march was both inspiring and amazing and overwhelming, and I needed to find a map forward. And the two of you have provided me with a range of ideas for how we can construct I think, a better future. Listeners, I'm going to charge you with some responsibility if you'd like to continue this conversation. I think we need to imagine what our future might be. And I think as we listen to these two extraordinary guests today, we hear that the solutions to the challenges we face right now involve a system that we've not experienced previously. And it's time for us to use our imagination to imagine a much better world for ourselves now and into the future. So we hope to continue that conversation through this year. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and listeners, if you can remember that we're on social media and we're very interested to hear feedback, we're on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. Our Facebook group is an active one, and if you go to Facebook and type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, we'd love to welcome you into that discussion. Listeners, we're available on your favourite podcast platform through Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And we're always interested to get a review and to get feedback. Uh, and we will, of course, be back next week with another episode. So goodbye from now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.